This is Matthew Putman from Utility Function. I sat down with Andrew Shearer, who is the founder and CEO of FarmShelf, which I think is one of the more interesting companies around these days, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Andrew, thanks for coming today to talk to me. Didn't have to come from far. We work in the same building, at least for the moment. Just down the hall, and thanks for having me. Oh, you know, I I think that everybody has a similar experience to me, but we all come from a bit of a different background. Um, I walk around a new lab where we work. There's how many companies do you think are here, Andrew? I mean, they say it's over, I think, 200 in various forms, but I'd say companies that have, you know, 10 or more people, there's probably like 15 at least. Yeah, I mean, I so I I think a lot of people have this. I walk by your company, Farm Shelf, and it makes me think about what I want the future to look like. And it goes back really far for me. <laughs> you know, I remember looking at hydroponic farming in a, in, at, at Disney World at, at yeah. Epcot Center. Have you Epcot ever Center. been on that? Um, I have a long time ago. There's a picture of it somewhere uh, from when I was two. But I've watched the YouTube videos and, and uh, gone on the virtual tours a lot of times. It's, it's amazing. So I walk by and I know that at Nanotronics, you know, where I work, we try to create this environment that is a, kind of a future that I'd like to see. Mm -hmm. But to see that I'll be working in the same place as the future of, of food is, is really interesting to me. I really want to get into why you're doing this. I mean, I, I look at your background, and you've been involved with business. You were in a tech startup. You were at Twitter. Is that right? Twitter, Pinterest. Before that, I did leverage finance for Wells Fargo. Um, I have a really kind of eclectic background and, and feel very much like a generalist, but I guess the the high-level picture of, of kind of uh, where this idea came from in, in my background is I um, grew up in Seattle um, with some awesome parents that got us involved in some really cool nonprofit work with a group called Agros, which means uh, land in Latin. And what Agros looks to do is end the generational cycle of poverty in Central America through land ownership, microfinance, um, and agricultural education. And so getting to be involved in that and just seeing how growing food can empower um, these people to really um, you know, change their lives in incredible ways in community was awesome. Um, and then as I went to college at uh, Pepperdine, being told by a mentor, you know, that making sure that you can understand the numbers and really make the numbers add up is one of the biggest keys, um, in addition to vision, to making um, a dream a reality. Uh, and so with that, studied finance, uh, built a rock climbing wall in my apartment that could collapse to hide from my landlord, um, a snow ski press that made some terrible snow skis, and then went banking, Twitter, Pinterest, and then while at Pinterest, started collecting Pinterest boards. I wanted to grow my own food. It was really that simple. And then when did you have a garden? I there was a little area in the back that was like the shared garden, but living in San Francisco in this packed city, it's like you really don't have much space. And so I bought a few things off Amazon that didn't really work that well, and started just looking at the technology that was out there and the experience that I was looking for, and then kind of coming to this realization like, wow, there's so much misinformation. There's an incredible opportunity here, not just to enable me to grow food, but really looking at it as building the Lego blocks to grow food anywhere. And like, what does it look like to build those tools that aren't just about an experience, but are really about empowering individuals where they are. And that's kind of where it all, that's, that's, I guess it was a scary moment sitting there and being like, oh shoot, this is possible. And trying to talk to other people that like, why aren't you doing this? And, and just being like, okay, this is the thing that I'm supposed to go do. Yeah. Um, God, there's, there's a few things and a few data points here that I would love to get into, but, uh, so you were involved first when you think about food in your background with a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. This would, what, what if you could make a good salary, make a good living working at the nonprofit versus starting having a startup? Why do business rather than be involved with a nonprofit that takes care of world hunger and food? Great question. Um, growing up, you know, I was very lucky to have awesome parents that that gave a lot back. Um, and to see the way that um, nonprofits had to constantly be out fundraising and asking for money and often were using uh, unlike a startup. 
I mean, I guess you're totally right. I mean, I guess there's a lot of similarities Sorry, there. I, no, I'm, I'm in the point. same place. I mean, I've, I've been fundraising always, for always nine fundraising. years. And but I think it's this thing where a nonprofit forever will be fundraising. Um, there are a few exceptions, but at the end of the day, the way that they, um, the rate at which they can drive change is often, is, is often not as, um, as impactful, positive or negative, or as rapid um, as a business. And business as a tool for good, conscious capitalism and, and items like that really is, if, if used appropriately, I think a way to love people well and to change the way that, um, to change the world and make it something that we want to live in. So it's something about incentives then, you think? Or do you think it, it is about urgency? What do you think the issue of how, and I, I agree with you, by the way, but uh-huh. I'm, I've been trying to figure out why I agree with this. But it does seem like there is a disproportionate amount of money in nonprofits that if you were able to put it into the hands of some entrepreneurs could do enormously good with. At the same time, you see a lot of big tech mm-hmm. that reverts to doing, I wouldn't say evil, but things that are not particularly good, uh, which is sort of a tendency of everyone, um, I, th- I think, in a for-profit world. It feels like something I'm always pulling and battling against that's trying to figure out which, which is going on. I think with business, you know, obviously there is a... Um you know, can you really be altruistic? I think is this t- this this idea that comes up of like, are you receiving something by helping someone? That is like why you're doing it, right? But with business, you know, you're 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 finding not just incentive structures, but value creation and value ownership and delivery structures that are easier to measure, scale, and repeat than um, can often be done in a nonprofit. It doesn't mean that those values there there is a place for nonprofits and there always will be and I think that charity is important, but I think there's a bigger place. Some people call it double bottom line, triple bottom line, quadruple bottom line, right? Business, but it's this thing of how do we use these tools that are so powerful, and then look at them with a different set of eyes and a different um, heart and intention with the same level of precision, financial excellence, innovation. And and get her after it in a way that the only way it will it will work because you're building a business, but also because you get to rally people around such a bigger mission and such a more important goal that you can't get anyone to work on something that hard unless it's something that is I think for a bigger purpose and for you know someone beyond just yourself. Yeah, I mean, do you feel that? Do, do you feel that you this was something that was missing in your life? So you have this you have this break between when you were working as a nonprofit since you were young, mm-hmm. you had good inspiration from your parents. It sounds like great inspiration. I guess the, a little bit deeper. Uh, growing up, just um, you know, got involved in, in, in uh, volunteering, not just with that uh, nonprofit, but also with a nonprofit for kids with cancer helping them deal with the emotional side of cancer at a place called Gilda's Club, as well as another thing called Camp Side by Side. So exposed to some really like raw moments and emotions that um, frequently, and then worked at Starbucks as a barista. Um, And then another fun story from the food area, which is I think where some of the dreams that I was thinking about, about um, I studied around East Africa after my freshman year, come back, um, and then I go the next summer and work at a cherry packing facility. You worked 45 days straight, uh, 12 to 18 hours a day. Um, and you walked away with a lot of money for a college student. And I was exporting millions of dollars worth of cherries that had just been gassed with methyl bromide to Japan every day. And, um, there was a, a gentleman there that was a little cynical about the world. And I told him how, you know, I'm really excited. I'm going to use business to help the world and get it. And he goes like, you have no clue what you're doing and you don't have the skill sets. You're living in fairy tale, fairy uh, fairy tale uh, land, and um, yeah, uh, and this this gentleman saying, you know, looking after I told him my dream of really using business to help people, saying, you know, you have no idea what you're doing, you don't have the skill set, you know, that's such an unrealistic dream, and it's not going to actually work from a business sense, and it never will, and. He was right in a lot of ways. 
And so that meant going back to the drawing board and saying, hey, you know, ego, ego aside, like if you really want to make something happen, you got to check your ego a lot of the times and be like, tell me what's wrong. Let's go. And from there, it was identifying five skill sets that I thought that I needed to go after in order to drive what I think um, long term will be macroeconomic impact. How do you go? Uh, how do you empower people in economies to drive outsized inner um, outsized GDP growth is something that I think about long term with this mixture of private equity, a new deal, um, startups and innovation and unique education models, including, you know, Singularity University and the way that they're even looking at things in a globalized, ever-changing economy. Um, that's what I started to just dream about all the time. And one of those skill sets was finance. Again, if you can't make the numbers add, add up, the dream doesn't matter. Sales, marketing, um, entrepreneurship, and international development. Um, Wells Fargo, Twitter, Pinterest, Farm Shelf. I, it sounds really planned out, but it more was just doing what was in front of me and feeling like it wasn't choosing things that felt like they were missing in my life, but just listening to what was right in front of me. And it almost felt inevitable. Um, when people ask me about Farm Shelf and, uh, you know, where it's headed, I, you know, fundraising stuff, startups are tough. 90% die in the first two years or some crazy stat like that. And even in the lowest and toughest moments when we were going through some tough stuff, it was just like, I know that come hell or high water, like this thing's going to work, whether I like it or not. Um, whether that was the easy way out or the right way out, um, I just knew, no, this is going to work. That's an incredible amount of confidence for something that is so hard to do. And I, I mean, I, I respect that so much in you. I mean, this is a, I, I think it's enormously important too. And I, I, I happen to agree completely that there could be some incentive structures. There's certainly um, ma macro views to be uh, considered here, but you, you know, there's this thing we have to do, which is starting fairly small and driving this combination of trying to get big investors to buy into a big dream, but getting customers, which may be one-off tools that you're building, you know, with your dad here, you know, on these first units before you had yeah, somebody, that, an actual company to produce these. Uh, did you feel that your first customers were going to be a trend to how the business was going to continue? And was that ever a concern of yours? To me, this has happened where I have sold something, and if I extrapolate that, I don't see reaching the big dream. Mm. So how to keep the micro and the macro in focus all the time? Is this ever a concern of yours? Absolutely. I mean, when we look at what we do today, it's it's growing food for, uh, you know, growing food on site for restaurants, corporate cafeterias, hotels, schools. And there are only so many of those in the world. And we have right now is, you know, a product that costs a little over $8,000. That's not something that's going to scale around the world. But when we break it down into kind of what are the things that we're doing, you know, providing the plants exactly what it needs, building the hardware, the intelligence around that, that makes it truly easy. And then how is that evolving over time? How are the Lego blocks that go into this evolving over time where we can go from a unit that today, you know, we're selling it over $8,000 where I envision in, you know, two years we'll be selling a unit that probably costs or we'll be able to make a unit and, and you know, sell it in certain areas or deploy it in different business models that is, you know, $500 to make and outputs 300 heads of lettuce a month. And right, so you have to think big because just scale is necessary to make this affordable. Scale and manufacturing and then the partnerships and and really looking at each one of our partners and customers as building a community that builds towards something bigger that we're inviting them into a movement. Um, you know, when we look at food, you know, who do we turn to for advice? Um, you know, chefs, restaurants, nutritionists, these people that we're getting to work with. So with that and just looking at all these people that we're so lucky to work with and, and build this community with, it's just building up towards this bigger thing that as we get to continue to expand and invite people into that, as the technology gets better, as we're able to offer it at different price points, that as, as we add new crops, that all of these things I look at as, as building blocks, as kind of the levels up, but that there are those moments where you say, I can only hit a certain amount of scale with a product that costs this much and is built for this user. But it's, you know, 
it's the amount of money that we have and how much of the problem we can solve now versus how much we have to almost earn the right to solve later by proving ourselves in this near-term phase. There's something that I think that you've done differently than other people in this business. And when I say this business, uh, you could even think about early GMOs. Um, you could think of uh, in a f uh, factory farming for meat, Wh whatever you think. When it comes to scale or you try to think of doing something that will reach a lot of people, you kind of sacrifice quality a little bit. Mm. Now, I think that can be fixed personally, and I th I'd love to get into talking about tech with you a little bit. Uh, but the one thing that is absolutely amazing is that when we try some of your food, it tastes better than if you go to an organic farm and taste it. So it's, it's expensive right now, but you start out with the idea that anybody that uses this, it has to be an incredible experience, not mm -hmm. just a convenient experience. Absolutely. I think it's obvious that if you have your food grown right next to you, it's right next to your table at a restaurant or at your home, the convenience is enormous. But the, if the quality is better and the cost, and that's where we're getting to. Right, right. Starting with the, the quality, I thought was really cool. I mean, we talk about when my son came at six years old or five years old. Do you I remember him like coming a, to visit? It was a week or two after uh, Halloween. And so, you know, parents, that Halloween candy bag comes back. You immediately hide it and give them one piece every once in a while. <laughs> um, and here uh, your son comes into the office uh, with you and your wife, and we give him a bag to harvest um you know, a variety of things that are on the different research units. And we had this Portuguese soup kale that was growing at the time. And I remember telling you, oh, yeah, this like this kale is amazing. And you're like, my son, my son doesn't eat like doesn't eat kale. Like, you know, like we'll see <laughs> how this goes is what we're kind of both thinking. And here he grabs this leaf of Portuguese soup kale and is putting one in a bag and then takes another one and, and bites into it. And this kale, I mean, it's amazing. It's uh, It's got moisture in the leaves. It just tastes so good. And the next words out of his mouth, like, oh, if I had had a camera and like a, a voice recorder, like like after this kid, had, after your son had just taken a bite of kale, he goes, wow, this is better than trick-or-treating. Yeah. Which in a million years, I was like, never, like, wow. Uh, you know, I give this moment as one of the sort of critical moments in my <laughs> that I've been around with my child. He loves salad, and he's near vegetarian yes. now. And I'm not a vegetarian, <laughs> so it's not, my, neither is my wife, um, but, I, th I think he's it's one of those things you've tasted something great and you keep wanting to achieve it. I, br I brought him here over the weekend to, you know, show him, you know, we're playing with our microscopes. We're doing stuff at, at 3D printers and he keeps going down to the farm shelf that we have and eating some things. And then we walk <laughs> by the others and he wants to try things. So I, I do something that maybe um, would be a secret to the people at our office that. When everybody's gone, I, I snip a few and ta <laughs> take a few so that I can make a salad for them. But really, a big deal, right? If, if you can imagine the eating habits of everybody being this way, and you're not going to get there by a piece of iceberg lettuce that, oh no, that comes so from it. better things out this there is, it, it happens we're missing out on. This, this way. Uh, I am jumping to something just because it came up in this. This is a technology product. Now, I think you started by talking about how you interact through an app with this, and you'd worked it in apps, but then you're dealing with sort of advanced electronics with the LEDs. You're even working with some carbon capture, working with hydroponics. Um, I want to ask you about some you know, things that are on everybody's mind. What do you think about GMOs and, gen and genetic, not just genetic organisms, but genetic modification even? Yeah, and how important is that if we're going to have sustainable food? Yeah, so there's a lot of different <clears throat> opinions out there, and it the, the the even the label GMO is is a, is a tough one because there are certain ones that are bred and they're you know are looking at certain crops in the way that they're bred, or certain ones and like uh, that are modified using uh, CRISPR style techniques. It gets the the worst of its name or the worst kind of connotation of GMOs really comes from companies like Monsanto, and the way that they modified seeds to be selectively um, to then pair with a pesticide that you basically had to use both in tandem. And that that was the way not only to increase yields, but also to protect your crop. And so you couldn't use one without the other. And it created- It was more of an IP issue than a health issue though, in your in your view. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree. And that um, with that, you know, there is certain uh, 
you know, seeds that have been modified and, and crops that have been modified with CRISPR that, you know, the uh, Swedish government, who's pretty liberal when it comes to these kind of things, do, do not consider as genetically modified items. And so when I hear about GMO, I think it's it's trying to do one big label that doesn't get after yeah. really what's important and what are we really talking about. We're not talking about Frankenstein rice. We're not talking about, you know, on some aspects, like GMOs have not been proven, and there's a big New York Times article about this, to have adverse health effects over a long term. That can be debated by a bunch of groups, but outside of that even, what the bigger issue, even if you look at the main use case for GMOs, is the use of pesticides and herbicides. and Which may have absolutely nothing to do with GMOs. Absolutely. And, I mean, that, and that, that, that is a huge confu confusion. But they essentially the created a GMO seed to get a better, yeah. not only hold of the pesticide market, but an herbicide market, but also to help it work more effectively. So you're inherently saying the way that we're going to win is by using pesticides and herbicides and and GMOs in tandem, where there's a real, you know, a real uh, bigger opportunity, I think better opportunity to look at how do we get away from pesticides and herbicides and then what are the different methods and tools we're using to do that. Right. Well, then let's talk about a genetic modification in order to get a better quality, better taste, mm -hmm. and working with it in, in an environment that uses us water, all of the things that are more sustainable, is this possible and is it something that you're working on? It's definitely something that's possible and, and something that a lot of companies are working on. When we look at our, our kind of where we feel responsible and, and, and where we want to add the most value, we feel it's really on distributed food systems and enabling the growing in that there are some incredible companies that are growing that are that are modifying seeds in a variety of ways um, that are going after those things that are you know better drought tolerance uh, a need for you know stronger stem walls that means uh, more natural resistance to pests um, and kind of all these different aspects that we then get to look at and go okay you know, we can take these different seeds and then we can provide them the ultimate environment that they want so that we can provide a type of crop that otherwise would not be possible from the growing perspective. And they can provide a seed that, you know, is kind of like, you know, a perfect marriage. And that by creating those systems that can truly do it wherever that um, and then collect the data. And hopefully we we hope one day as we scale, share that data back with a variety of scientists. It's really about that feedback loop. Right. And, and right now the feedback loop in agriculture really, there's a, there's so much to innovate on and change there. One of the tough things, even for us as a small company, is this topic of GMOs. Whether we agree that it's a good idea or a bad idea to grow, you know, to use GMO seeds from a marketing and from just a use of resources perspective, we are it's not a wise financial choice for us to use or say that we use or even really spend much time exploring genetically modified seeds because of, I think, how much education and, and proper education still needs to happen there. Yeah, I was so, when I first met you, I was so hoping that we would have this little CRISPR kit that I could sit there and try to design my, you know, my own type of basil that is mixed with a different grain and uh, you know, I, I thought that the idea to be doing home crispering on designing my own things would be great. But I understand that is that the battle that we want to be fighting first? And <clears throat> I think this happens a lot probably with you is, you know, what, what are these first things that need to be done? Do you want to fight a political battle when you know you don't have to do CRISPR, you know, this type of gene, the most, I think probably the most famous type of gene modification Absolutely. right now. You don't have to be doing this even if it would be interesting. Uh, it, you know, it, it's sort of a shame, but is it, is, is it going to be ever necessary if you're dealing with the, the, the types of, I guess the, the biggest things you're dealing with are poverty if you want to talk about big goals. Mm -hmm. So this isn't sort of near-term financial goals for your company, but, you know, uh, water shortage maybe. Mm -hmm. um, jobs, isn't jobs, waste, uh, you know, the, the footprint of our, our of our um, food system. And even when we look at, you know, the rising billion right now and that, you know, the majority of people get their, the majority of, or what is it, like 50% of people in the world get the majority of their calories and nutrition from rice and beans. Like there, there, there's a change that's 
in the process of happening, and not only that, but populations are growing, and we need to li- to live a nutrition to live a healthy lifestyle. We need to start eating more vegetables in the U.S., but around the world, really. Yeah, and to do that and 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 be able to provide that food in a way that is sustainable um, and economical, we really need to change the way that we grow highly perishable, highly nutritious foods. And then to even expound upon that, it's with um, different ways of smart agriculture and precision agriculture, whether that is CRISPR and genetically modified aspects or the way that smart agriculture, uh, you know, weather forecasting is changing the way that farmers even look at the the areas and the, at the times that they plant crops and all these different scientific, you know, kind of it's ag tech, ag tech is going through a revolution right now and it's really exciting. It may be one of the more important things you I mean, if you pair it with things like water purification, with mm-hmm. desalinization, uh, probably with carbon capture it, it, in a, in a larger sense, pollution, there's probably a few things you pair this with and you take care of a lot of the problems that people are trying to address in you know, maybe less technological ways, in my view, at least. Would you agree with that? Yes. I think one of the things that I also hope to address is not just access to access and pri- uh, to quality food at a, at a low price point, but that in some ways we often look at technology, and I, I get why, is around automation and around, like, how do we, you know, use as few people as possible. And which is why universal basic income and all these different ideas are coming up. But then we're, we also, I think, should be looking at, are we applying the resources in a way that's responsible in some ways? If you think about the fact that a head of lettuce is purchased, uh, according to the USDA, is purchased for about 40 cents. Uh, a farmer makes 40 cents for growing a head of lettuce. This was the USDA average in March. And then it's sold for $1.99. Is the money to be made in automating that 40 cents? Or is it to be in changing the logistics chain around our food and making that not only more efficient, but making it so that more of that value is delivered directly to the end end consumer? And right, I think I think providing abundance is the most important, no matter what. Right, so it, it, abundance in food, food is fairly cheap as it is. Right, yeah, it's true that you know that's that's expensive, um, but compared to you know. Food is more available right now than it used to be with enormous negative externalities, I think. Yes. I mean, and, and let's, let's, just talk, let's just talk about the U.S., mm-hmm. but certainly not healthy food. Not <laughs> I mean, there's, food. There's, there's that issue. I yeah. mean, you, you may have a free lunch at a school, but they, the free lunches are unbelievably unhealthy. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And, you know, here we are in, in Brooklyn, and— we have some of the biggest food deserts in the entire U.S. Here, yeah, it's amazing, and you know there is next to Union Square Market or something like this that it has these incredible in the, things. In the same city, five miles means the difference between access and and no access to quality food, where um, and at a, at a reasonable price point. And that, where do we need our fresh quality food to be? Well, everywhere, everywhere we are, robots and logistics when it comes to getting to every place. Is really expensive and really difficult, which makes it hard to do around something that is so that needs to be so cost effective and relatively to your point, low cost as food. So if we can grow the food where it's consumed, provide a job in the process, then we're taking that dollar fifty nine and giving that to the person that's either making mm-hmm. a living off it or like saving that money and providing it back to their community. Well, in a way, I, I feel like it's could be part of the same idea as UBI, even though called something different food because is a utility if you it is food is a utility exactly it's a public utility and that not only will it be for an economic reason but then you look at you know you, i remember you told me what would it look like to have a farm shelf in a car and, and, and mm-hmm. we went and rendered this uh this uh, delivery car with like a basically the back of it was oh a yeah. farm shelf and then the next thing we started thinking about is okay self-driving cars are coming about you know there's gonna be all these parking spots everyone's gonna rush to use them for commerce because it's you know it's in some ways the people way, the way people look at it is free space, but really, it's a public asset. It's a public good. Parking spaces, and so the thing we're then going to ask is, okay, well, who's going to use this this public asset in a way that adds economic value, social value, environmental value, and societal value, and by enabling farms to then take those parking spaces and change and beautify our cities and provide food, like it's the perfect setup to change like. 
that city of the future where you're walking down, it's snowing outside, you look to your right, and there's fresh strawberries. Like, that's not a future that is going to happen in, you know, for my grandkids. It's going to happen for me and my kids. Yeah. One, one, one thing that keeps coming up in people I talk to, and just the way I've been thinking about the world lately, it's very people have a very, I think, dystopian view of what's going on. We, we climate, you know, cli really climate change, and you know, pe people are terrified of the future, but it's not just terrified of the future. They don't even know another future is possible. They kind of distrust the system, and I get that, and I didn't, it, when I was just, when you were just speaking about, you know, life science companies that, use genetic modification and uh, in in combination with pesticides indigo bio i think is an interesting company that like i, I really like amazing. them yeah. I, they're a really they're interesting company stuff. yeah um, but but when you look at that then when something has been used in a very negative way or i would say man whether it's a negative way or just not in a utopian way if it doesn't provide this world that we're that you're talking about that i think you know, makes things like UBI, you know, seem almost small, right? If if food is immediately accessible to me and it's not bad food, it's the best food you could possibly have. A strawberry know, that will make Skittles taste terrible. Right, but yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But people will extrapolate what they have seen mm. in recent years. So it's, the communication has to be doing what you did with my son, I think. It, and that's, I can think that's the biggest thing is to, so people won't believe it. Mm. They've been told a lie. They've been, for on a lot of other things, that the truth is no longer something that you can just tell them. And I feel like that's kind of our responsibility. And that's, that's something that may not have been true 50 years ago, but feels true to me now. Uh, that, you know, if you could hand somebody that kale, and I, I think that's a challenge that we have. Yeah, and to, to speak to, you know, looking at you know, the, the greatest generations, you know, I think that was their title, like yeah. the, that lived through world wars and like what they've seen and how so much has progressed and how better of a place the world is from when they were born. And there's almost been this assumption that, you know, my kids will have a better life than I did. And, and that has flipped in many ways. It has, for the first except for you said the opposite. You said that they will see this, and you will see this in your lifetime. And so I, think not your kids or grandkids. And I, and I and I mean that. And so I think it's this thing where there's been this flip in perception, and technology that we had called a savior let us down, and now it's about earning back a tr trust, driving true impact, and not just. Uh, standing from the rooftop and shouting look at me we're doing xyz like we're the next big tech company we're changing the world because our ad targeting is going to you know sell more things than anyone else right or you start out saying that you will do no evil and then you become an ad tech company and you're filling in the blanks of uh, you know this is this ad is what inherently evil i think i like you don't uh, think it is um advertising and sales has a place there are ways to do it well and morally and ethically and there are ways that are the antithesis of that. Um, but I think what, and you mentioned this earlier, what's super frustrating, right? There's, there's a great quote. What is it? The biggest, uh, the biggest travesty of our time is that some of the sm smartest minds in the world are figuring out how do you get you, how to get you to click on a button one more time. Exactly. Um, no, it's, it's really depressing to me and why I'm so relieved to hear you. S you're the opposite of ad tech, even though you worked at Twitter but we're, <laughs> you know, we're when stealing from them. We're stealing their technology and applying it to a better problem, a more important problem to go after. But to your point, ad tech and certain things that are along those lines of having those type of data feedback loops where this technology is able to drive a profit um, for a level of investment and speed and, and to a certain extent business model understanding that's so simple to understand nowadays means that getting people to think outside of what has been done for the last 10 years, even though it's literally taking the same technology and go, look at this, we're applying it to this and where the math works. Like it, and I'm not talking like, I'm not talking VC math. I'm talking like actually running a <laughs> business math Yeah. and the math works. And then they look at you and they go, 
Okay. Well, no one's ever done it before. Well, okay. Well, so there's. A, I think that what's happened with Silicon Valley and funding in general is that they apply a certain discount rate to anything you say, right? And so that we we so always end up lie, which is right because which everybody everybody is raising money with a certain exaggeration, even a, a generation previous to us raising money, and so by this time, no matter what we say, they've discounted it. So we have to then hype it one more level. But what, why what you're doing is so the opposite of ad tech to me is that ad tech is completely about doing something subliminal, mm. right? You're, you're making a search result lead you to something and you don't even know why you're doing it. Or it may even affect elections and you don't know. There are all of these things that are going on that come from the very large ad tech companies. When what you're doing is reaching over and grabbing a piece of lettuce. Mm -hmm. And whoever bought that farm shelf unit, there's a price associated with that and the pods that come along with it, which are the crops. Yeah. Um, it's extremely direct. <clears throat> it's, it's, there's, it's the opposite of subliminal. And you mentioned the app, but at the end of the day, I think more about a user experience where like there is no like you want like the plants are a first class citizen. And that's the thing that people are interacting with. And technology pushes onto phones and computers in so many ways that connected us, quote unquote, more than ever before. But in some ways, we're more disconnected than we've ever been in human history. Yes, we we From certainly an are. Perspective. Oh, oh, I think that's I think it's completely and true. Food brings us back together, and right. we come together around food. So growing food together is an amazing way to bring us back together, and to be able to do it in a way that truly impacts people, I think, is so important. I'm certainly not against the idea of apps. I mean, you know, this yeah. is the user experience. This is how you mm -hmm. engage with something in the modern era, and also, I it's it's a way to take, like you said, to use technology that is available because we have mass connection, but to use it for something that is incredibly, incredibly local. I mean, I was thinking, if, we, if we, it just made me think about this previous generation. Mm -hmm. So if you go to this greatest generation mm -hmm. and you see not always incredibly positive things, sometimes negative things, but you see governments coming together at first. So you have you have NASA as a big thing. NASA mm -hmm. comes together. They you get to the moon within nine years. Insane. You know, people yeah. people believed it to be possible. Or you know, Salk is funded, and you have a cure for polio. You know, it affects everybody, including a president that was in one of the more successful presidents of the 20th, 20th century, arguably. Uh, and then you know, government comes behind it. People come behind it. So people trust NASA and the government. And then I think they started trusting Apple, right? So mm -hmm. this is my theory, right? That you- The tech companies are the new government. You know, well, but yeah, but specifically Apple for a while, right? So you have the, uh, you know, the personal computer, you have all of these, you have these announcements and this convergent device. Steve Jobs announces this small convergent device, an iPhone. This was, so you no longer trust the government. Now you trust a corporation. Now Apple is making kind of iterative steps. They're not uh, the next. I mean, it, the the newest iPhone is cool, but it really just has an extra camera on it. It's not that much different. It's not this new convergent device. So who are we trust? Who do we trust now? And I love the idea that what we trust is something that actually feeds us, and by feeding us, you feel a part of the of being able to feed the world. And it's not just you, it's not just that you're creating these farm shelves, it's everybody who's taking a part in it and, and leading to a kind of collective knowledge, but not for ad tech's sake, uh, not subliminally, but completely explicitly. And we're all looking for you know our community, our brand, our tribe. Right. And it's just, what is, that, what is that being built around? And is it something that we think that there can be a sustained and long-term good there will obviously always be issues with anything but coming together around certain things i think just um being a part of a community and of, of, of a bigger movement um is what we're all looking for and looking for that connection what's the biggest pushback right now i mean i remember in <coughs> i'm sorry i remember in 2007 or 2008 um 
I was at the World Science Festival that I was involved with, a big festival in New York on, on science, and it was the first or second year of it. And I was at a table uh, with uh, uh, somebody who had won the Nobel Prize, and he was working in the, and he ends up working at the, uh, in the Obama administration. I'll let our listeners figure, try to figure out who that is. <laughs> but he, uh, and um, a professor from Columbia just gave, had given a lecture about vertical farming. Uh, Dixon Despamier. Yeah, exactly. And that was the first time I'd met him. And I, I was just so incredibly excited. And this Nobel laureate who was supposed to be the, certainly so much smarter than the rest of us in the room in some regards, or more educated, certainly, in, in he said, the externalities are so negative to vertical farming, you'll never get LEDs to have the kind of efficiency that could actually have plants growing in a basement this way. And we're not talking that long ago, 11 years ago. Yeah. And it was, I couldn't sit there and say he's wrong. I didn't have the calculations. This guy was the expert. And he made Dixon look like, like this was just some old, cranky, you know. Uh, what I is that, first of all, do you ever hear that anymore, that there's an, that there's an energy trade-off that would make it not as environmentally friendly as the environmental benefits of vertical farming? Looking back a few years, even to like 2015, LEDs had come a long way, but there was still a little bit further to go to make it truly more um, sustainable from um, a carbon footprint perspective. And and just the level that they've come since 2015 is incredible. Or in 2015, you had to be doing it really, really well. Like not anyone could hit it in a way where they could do it in a truly sustainable way. So a farm shelf is like four feet wide, two feet deep, six and a half feet tall, has four shelves. So you know, about the size of a fridge or a bookshelf. Figure it costs us about $500 for our LEDs today. That same set of LEDs in 2010 would have cost over $100,000 and probably required six times the energy to run, if not more. And so I think looking at the just how rapidly the technology changed, like – LEDs are going to get a lot better, by the way. Which People don't realize this, but I mean, we're, I mean, it's something we're working closely with companies that make LEDs and, and the, the type of semiconductors that those are based upon, and we're still at the beginning. And so it almost feels like there's these um, – and they happen in different stages and er, or rates, but the Moore's Law – there's a Moore's Law, it feels like, for every industry. And for indoor farming, part of it was just how rapid the LED evolution happened. Yeah, And then, like, for computers, it was, like, looking at processing power and the fact that, you know, five megabytes used to be an entire building, and now it's, like, can you buy anything in five megabytes? Like, there's nothing that small. Yeah, I, I love to think about this, that I think Moore's Law has come kind of to its end as far as traditional semiconductor Absolutely, manufacturing. Yeah. I think there's really interesting ways around it, and that's a topic for another conversation. But uh, – when you look at a, a curve of Intel, for instance, it, you know, it kind of, they were a great company from the, from the beginning, but it was personal computers started to take off in the, in the late 80s. You had the internet then, and you see this huge inflection point of, you know, not just technologically, but adoption by everybody. So this, this ha you saw Moore's Law already existed before, but then there was this adoption um, inflection point. I feel like you're, not just you, but the world is just below that inflection point. So it's it's that it's that close that LEDs will converge with the ability to create vertical farms with in such a way that, that make it easy. Yeah, and, and that you know, so much of a startup, is, you know, it's great people, it's funding, it's 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 good leadership and ideas, but there's a there's a large part of it, a massive part of it that's all about timing. Like if we had started the company, you know a year or two prior, it probably wouldn't have made it because we would have been a little bit too, you know, far, far away from the, the, the types of technology we would need or the types of learnings we would needed that we would have had to raise more money or something along those lines. But life will be easier. You think in three years because, it, because of other technologies that will allow it, you to make a farm shelf cheaper. Yes. And we actually map some of the technology changes that we see kind of on the horizon with different features and certain crops that we know when this happens, that enables this, which then means it's off to the races with this type of modification product or feature. 
um, specifically with LEDs, is, is a good one. Samsung, I am obsessed with their LM561H chip. We started off on their B, and now we're onto their H. Oh, um, oh cool. Like nerding out on just, like, the heat coefficients and how many uh, with plants you talk about, like, uh, uh, moles, not lumens. Like, how many moles of light, you know, uh, you're getting out of a chip and, and providing that to the plant. Um, it's super interesting. It's so much fun. In another life, I'm an engineer. In this one, I'm just uh, finance and uh, block and tackle to get the right people in the right places. I was going to ask you what you see on the horizon outside of outside of your own uh, work at all, and I I don't know. It feels like there's a little bit of a subset that you're seeing. You know what what is going on in electronics and LEDs that might be of interest to you outside of what you're doing. But what else are you seeing that just excites you going on in the world, or that you think that more attention should be paid to and funding? Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's this idea of um, impact investing and, you know, funds that are related to the drawdown, um, like uh, Project Drawdown and, and you know, investing in groups like uh, Climeworks and, and others like that. And that um, we have record amounts of, of capital available, quote unquote, really sitting on the sidelines um, to be deployed in new ventures. And one of the things that is, I think is a critique of, of a lot of impact investors is like, yeah, well, I expect the same exact return. Well, it's not been great investing in the past. People seem much more positive on it now, but it has not generally been very good. And I think because it used to be this, I'm making the ultimate moonshot bet that's like a one in a million, or I'm taking the safe bet that's an ad tech startup. But it's that middle ground that takes a lot of nuance and understanding yeah. that's that is so exciting right now to see. I was just up at a conference with Nicerta, um, talking about like uh, clean tech, and to see some of these different companies and the way that they're uh, focused focused on everything from um, carbon capture and then taking you know C uh, CO2 that's sequestered and then putting it into a variety of project uh, projects, um, even putting it into cement. So to kind of think about how we're we using even the pollution that we can collect or these other items to put it into these things that also have a you know have a footprint in themselves and these unique ways of rethinking our economies our products our interactions and that you know user engagement and product creation um are these things that truly set companies apart and so if you can find some unique way to you know make it where it's consumed or use a different type of product that when it goes into it not only does it make it you know environmentally friendly but there's also a business case for it where, no, even if this wasn't environmentally friendly, like, it would be the smart choice. Like, this is a waste product. I get paid to take this off someone's hands, and then I put it into an upscale, like, an upcycled product, not even a recycled product. Like, that's where I think so many brilliant minds are focused. Um, there's an anaerobic digestion company, um, uh, Industrial Organics, uh, that, I, you know, I think is just doing great work. Um and then others looking at these technologies and kind of being like, okay, big tech, you know, we trusted them a little bit too much, but they developed some cool stuff. Now let's take that and go ball out on some really great problems, some problems that are worth solving in a way that they're never going to go after because even with all their money, they're not as hungry as an individual that wants to solve a problem and will stop at nothing until it's solved. Thank you so much, Andrew. This is gives me so much hope, and this is why I always love to work with you and be spend time with you um, thanks so much for coming and talking to me thanks and thanks for um you know just being such an awesome supporter of farm shelf uh i remember sitting down and talking with you just you know starting a company i jokingly say it takes you have to be a little crazy just because it, it it it's a uh it's a crazy thing to almost think you have to be a little bit crazy to think it'll succeed even when you look at the math and all the things you're gonna have to overcome and luckily you don't know about 99 percent of them when you start but uh I was even um, telling someone earlier about a story. Uh, I told him I was coming over here to do this podcast and that there was a story that I hadn't told you. And uh, the story was that back in, uh, ugh, it must have been 2016, year one of the company, we went through some tough stuff. And, um, or no, it would have been 2017, 2017. So still year one of the company. But uh, 2016, did we move in here in 2016? Oh, yeah. God, I don't even... <laughs> yeah. So it was the first year of us being in New Lab. That's all I know. Yes, 2016. It was June 2016 that we moved in, uh, or July. Anyway, 2016, it's the winter. I'm in our office. It's super late at night. 
we're, we're out of money. I'm in like, I think like $50,000 worth of credit card did at that point. The lights are off. I'm in our office, which has this big window next to it. And I'm drafting an email that is the draft of the email to shut down the company because we're at, we're, we're out of, we're out of cash and, you know, no, um, opportunities or there wasn't a, a there wasn't a path forward from um, a resources perspective. There was from a technology and a team perspective, but we couldn't find the resources at the time. Um, and then you just literally knocked on the door as I'm halfway through writing this email, uh, and I, and I walk outside and you're like, "Hey, I just want to let you know, like, I'm, you, there's these investors that are interested in Farm Shelf, and I'd just love to help any way I can." And I just remember walking back to my computer and just being like, looking at that email and being like you got to be kidding me. Like, there's no way this is real. And like, and in that moment being like, dang it, I just need like a film crew because no one's going to believe these stories. Like they sound way too ridiculous, but they're absolutely true. So incredibly touching to me because I, that was actually a kind of tough time for us too. I think I had my, uh, I, I was looking at credit card <laughs> <laughs> limits at the time too. And so I sort Thanks, of feel, you know, we, sh we shared something that we didn't even know we shared, which was not that we were just struggling with businesses and trying to get a business going, but that we thought that the future could be something that you could touch and that people would buy into that future and that we could dine together and the world could dine together. Yeah, and that sounds can. so romantic and crazy, but it seems to be working. And I think one thing that I've been really encouraged by, you know, there's a Silicon Valley and, and startups in general just get a ton of, you know, a ton of crap, a lot of it, rightfully so. But when you look at different entrepreneurs and, and founders and even just people out there um, working on crazy projects along the way, it's been really encouraging to see that even when you're struggling with something, whether that's fundraising, your product's not working, it's been the hardest day in the world. Just seeing that even in those moments, those people will go out of their way to help someone else. And that the best founders I've met, they go that extra mile when they don't have the time to help someone else, because if they just focus on themselves, then that's going to be a lonely road and probably not successful, but actually reaching out and helping others when it doesn't make necessarily logical sense is so important. I agree. Yeah. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks for having me.